Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the Alonement Podcast. I'm your host, Francesca Spector, and this show is all about your longest and most important relationship, the one you have with yourself. It doesn't matter if you're single, married, or somewhere in between. Alonement means valuing your time alone, regardless of your romantic status. Each week, I ask a new guest about the time they spend by themselves and why it matters. Today, I'm here with my guest, BBC Radio London's Joe Good. If I opened my front door, you know, at a time when I was living with other people and shouted hello and someone answered, I'd think, damn it, there is nothing better than entering your place and the silence. And you just think, yes, this is how I left it. And now I can relax. Joe Good is a radio presenter, actor, and more recently, a much-loved YouTuber. As a television actress, Jo featured in Crossroads, Fools and Horses and The Bill. On stage, she has played the title character in Educating Rita. In 2003, she joined BBC Radio London and has stayed there ever since. Jo presents her own show from Monday through to Friday. She also hosts the Dogs and the City podcast, where she interviews celebrities and their dogs over a walk around London. Earlier this year, Jo launched her own weekly video blog called Middle-Aged Minx. For anyone who hasn't seen it already, it's a warm, hilarious insight into Jo's jam-packed life, with the aim of inspiring her fellow baby boomers to see just how fun life can be in your 60s. What I love about this channel is how authentic it is. Jo's positive approach to life is absolutely infectious, and you come away with a massive smile on your face. Joe, you wear so many hats, so thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I'm so flattered you asked me, I really am. Oh, it's so lovely to have you on. In your first middle-aged mates vlog, you describe yourself as someone who swum against the tide. What do you mean by this? I think I'm 64 years old, and I think that uh, even though I've had quite an anarchic lifestyle in that I've worked as an actress and I've worked with people who are vagabonds and free spirits and actors and actresses, everyone usually ends up playing by the rules. So most of my friends will have done what people do, which is stay in one place, usually stay with one partner, maybe separate, have another partner, and have 2.4 children. I mean, that usually is 
the case, even though we all set off with the same vision that we weren't going to tread that path. Um, at the final hour, most of them did. And I'm, I'm talking as though that was some kind of sacrifice. It's not, they, they all love their lives. I just haven't, my journey hasn't followed that pattern. And I don't know whether it's something childishly in me that I just always want to go off in a different direction or just that I followed a career that really demanded so much of me I don't think I could have handed my life over to a child or indeed another person and say, you know, here, have a bit of me and I'll help deal with your issues as well as mine. I don't think there was space for that, to be honest. And do you think there was perhaps a pivotal moment you can pinpoint when you decided to swim against the tide? I I always loved... So my, my fam... We're a very strange family. We... There's only three of us left, actually. There's my 94-year-old mother, my brother who lives in Amsterdam, who lost his son in very tragic circumstances, and I think that plays a certain amount into how I see life and parenthood, um, and myself. And when we're together, which isn't very often, we all sit in separate rooms. We love each other. When my father was alive, we would come together to eat, and then we would all go to our to our separate rooms we're all great readers and and we all read in our separate rooms come down to eat and and go back to this solitary but enjoyable existence so I and that's how I grew up but I had a lot of friends I still have a lot of friends I've had a lot of relationships because I'm an old hippie so there were no health issues we all had a great time and then my last relationship was with a fellow broadcaster who was as I thought as abandoned as I was and this was your fellow presenter known Mm. as Big George Big George yeah Um, he was actually married which I knew um, and had children and was a grandfather and I'd assumed that he that they all knew about me and that that was you know, that that was fine. He died, actually. He died in quite tragic circumstances. And they weren't really aware of his and my relationship, which had been five years of living, working, both of us for the BBC, living in W1. Um, And that, I think, it was eight years ago, that made everything in my life shift. I did really withdraw. I withdrew um, into my private world. I still have a very gregarious outside persona, but I will go to earth. And I started to go to earth, you know, the end of my show. I'd finish at 10 and I'd go home and then literally try not to talk to anyone until I had to do the show the next day. Now, that was probably grieving for him, um, but it was a it was a protection as well. I just thought no one I can't be hurt anymore, and I quite enjoy being here with my dog, which was his dog as well. So Matilda was a pet that you bought together. Yeah, she was, and in no way was she a surrogate child. I have never wanted children. Um, she's she. I'm not her mother. She's my dog, but she was something that 
strangely enough, created a maternal instinct in me. I, I, you know, I had to make sure I was home to look after her. I had to think about her and I'd never had to think about anyone. You know, my mother was healthy, my brother was healthy, my father had passed away. I could live my hedonistic lifestyle. And I did, you know, I really did. I had a fantastic time. And then when, when, as I say, my ex-partner died, there were morals to consider, you know, that I'd affect, my existence had affected his immediate family. And I didn't have the energy to go out looking for anyone else and I didn't want anyone else. That must have been very difficult, almost not being able to grieve openly or in the way you might have liked um, when he passed because you didn't realise that you weren't known to his family. I had to, it was a strange, and this has been written about, so this is nothing new, but the the London cab drivers who were the backbone of our radio station loved him because he was the late night overnight presenter. So they'd all listen to him. And when he died, they invited me to a vigil in the middle of Portland Place outside the BBC. And all the black cabs in London turned their lights off in acknowledgement to him. And um, they invited me to be there. That was my public grieving I couldn't go to the funeral, and so I grieved behind a closed door on my own. How long did that grieving process last? I think, I think it, it's so funny sitting down talking to you, I think it probably still goes on. I, it's a very strange thing because I have this public life where all the listeners on the radio station knew we were together. The Evening Standard wrote about us. We had this very, you know, this showbiz couple that danced through London and the listeners would refer to him. And they, having read the tabloids, knew about his own private life and therefore knew about our life. So they, they're extraordinary though. They treaded carefully, but it meant I couldn't say a great deal on air for fear of his family because I just thought... They don't need me expressing my grief on air when they're still trying to deal with the circumstances surrounding it. That must have been very difficult for you. Mm. Would you say that you haven't had a relationship comparable since? I haven't, and I don't want one. And I, But I do think he was the full stop to that part of my life. You know, he we had this extraordinary time, and it was almost like... It had run its course. That sounds so awful because he died and and he died. It's such as he just died. Suddenly this light went out, you know, he had a massive heart attack and I'd been talking to him literally the night before. But it had, it, when I think what he and I went through, that was like the final full stop. I'm not, when I look back on it now, I just think, yes, that, that was inevitable. It was inevitable that was going to happen. Why would you say it was inevitable? We couldn't have gone on living the way we were living. He, he, and it really does actually, it hints at what we're talking about tonight. He, when he got to know me, he bought into the whole gregarious, actress, party-going Joe Good, and I am not. And it would, it would confuse him and and familiarity breeds contempt he was always kind to me there was but this thing of we were, we are asked to go everywhere and the nature of my job i'm invited to literally every first night there are non-stop first night parties everyone wants you there because you'll talk about it the next day and i hate them i've always hated them 
Vanessa Feltz, who works on our radio station, she holds these amazing parties. And she says, Joe, I know what you do. I arrive, I walk straight through saying hello to everyone, out the back door, get in my car, and I'm home in 15 minutes. No one listening to you would know that. No one knowing your career would know that. No, I, I think people think I'm this this party girl and I'm not and George it would really frustrate him because he wanted he was a bon viveur he wanted to go out he he was a great drinker he was a great raconteur and if I did go out with him to any of these social events I'd always be going can we leave can we leave can we leave it's because I just wanted to get home and what is it that you find challenging about parties and social scenarios like that it sounds so arrogant. I just don't need it. I don't need it. I have a job where I've, I talk, similar to yourself, to, to people all the time. I, you know, the studio door opens and they introduce me to someone else with the, the most extraordinary story. And I unpick them and it's three and a half hours, five days a week. And by Friday, I just think I actually don't want to hear any stories. I don't want to smile. You know, I just want to go home. And I, this, so this is, this is total arrogance. I love my company more than anyone else's. And I used to say that to George because we both lived either ends of Marabone High Street. We both had studio flats. It took eight minutes for him to walk to me and me to him. And I would, he'd text me and go, are you in? And I'd go, yes, but I just want to, to be alone and he took that as rejection I think that's I always talk about how alonement can come into relationships and people don't realize that because they think being alone that's something that single people do and that's really not the case at least I know that in my relationships space has been the difficult thing because when you say to perhaps a more extroverted person or someone who feels they need that social stimulation, I need space that seems like an affront rather than something that's healthy and natural. And I don't think it's arrogant at all that you enjoy spending time with yourself so much, especially because you give so much to other people. Do you think that's always something that you've been able to assert or do you think that's something you've realised about yourself maybe in recent years? I think... It, that's a really interesting question because I think I've I've been a performing monkey all my life, and I, my brother who I mentioned who uh, lives in Amsterdam is the complete opposite to me. He's incredibly introvert, mm. and we'd be in these situations, this four you know, with two adults, two kids, where it would be socially compromising because he wouldn't speak because he didn't feel the, feel the need to. Mm-hmm. So I would join in the gaps I would fill the gaps I would fill the space for the family I would do it all the time you know little blonde Joe would fill the gaps and if you think that's what I do in my career I fill the gaps and I'm very good at it but it is exhausting would you call yourself an extrovert then I think I'm a part-time extrovert or a professional extrovert so professional extrovert and private introvert. Mm. Yeah. 
Would you say that maybe earlier in your career you felt more stimulated by these parties or there was a purpose more to going to them? Absolutely. I th- I never thought, I mean, I was pr- I honestly never thought when I was younger. I was pretty empty-headed. I was very pretty. I was employed as a dolly bird. I mean, even using that expression now makes me flinch, but this we're talking about the 70s and the 80s where that's, if you could tick that box, you would get a lot of work in BBC Light Entertainment, waddling around. I never thought about anything. I just thought, well, this is great. I'm just bouncing from job to job to job. I'm All my friends were actors. And, I'm, you know, I had a great life. I never stopped to think. And then I think when I started to work for the BBC, I was working with journalists who never give anything away. <laughs> You're nodding. Do you know they don't give anything away? So again, I'm filling in all the silences because they would just. Do you think so, Joe? Really? So I'd carry on, um, and then I started, I suppose, to think. I started to think actually, and I don't think I did think until I was about forty-five about anything. I just was. <laughs> well. I think there's something to be said for how authentic you are and that's so much part of your brand. I don't know, do you think that maybe you put more barriers up as you've got older or do you think that there's still that same person who would want to fill in those gaps? No, I don't put barriers up. What I do is remove myself. My my time on my own is what, to use a real cliche, is what charges my batteries literally I don't answer my phone I'm it's infuriating I don't mean I'm so in demand people are constantly trying but my you know my close friends do try to get hold of me and they don't anymore they haven't done they they will you know whatsapp text or something I I go to earth every day every night I my my ideal diary is to have nothing in it I know the feeling. I do like that phrase, though, going to earth. I've never oh, heard gosh. that before. It's, it just gives me strength. And I literally, yeah, go to earth. And I think when you when we were talking about the death of Big George, I, go to, I went to earth to lick my wounds. And I, I, you know, some people will just look out, you know, will run to their friends. I run away. I just think I can deal with this. I can deal with it. And I need to do it on my own. Probably a lot of people close to you would have worried about Totally. This. You know, I have agents, I have editors, I have bosses, I have everyone worried. And they needn't, you know, because I, I honestly can build, I honestly believe I can build my strength from being alone. So why do we always assume that someone, when they isolate themselves, it's a bad thing? Or, yeah. And um, people always assume that being alone and not seeking therapy or help is a sign of failing mental health but that wasn't the case for you I think because loneliness is seen as such a negative thing and loneliness and being alone are two separate things being alone to me is such an attractive word being alone if we go back to Vanessa Felt she won't mind me saying this I remember her saying if she opens her front door and shouts hello and no one answers she will just close it, get in her car and go and find someone, a mate and hang out. If I opened my front door, you know, at a time when I was living with other people and shouted hello and someone answered, I'd think, damn it. 
there is nothing better than entering your place and the silence. And you just think, yes, this is how I left it. And now I can relax. And that's something you say you've always fostered with your family, that you'd always be in separate rooms. Mm. We had no sofa. I have this thing, I talk about it on air, and I've been told by the BBC to stop this, actually. Because when I was on The Breakfast Show, I was on The Breakfast Show, which is a family breakfast show. People get ready in the morning. And I was an oddity because I was a single woman with no family. Um, and This was prior to Big George, actually with no partner or partners, but I never talked about them. Um, and couldn't, you know, talk about the kids getting ready for breakfast in the school run. I had nothing, you know, and I'm a gobby person, but I had no anecdotes at all. Um, but I used to say, I don't like the smell of families. And I can remember my producer at the time just saying, you have to stop that. Just stop that. You can't say that on a breakfast show. And I said, but I, when I open doors, to a family home, it makes me flinch. Because if a, fa- a family is a responsibility, you demand that everyone's happy. You want to know that every single person is happy and that you're there for them. And I don't want that. I don't. I just don't want it. And we, in my family home, we never had a sofa. So no one ever sat next to anyone to watch anything. And it makes me laugh when I go home to my mother's home now. There are four chairs in each corner of the living room. And that's, if we were ever together, we would sit in, no, there was never a sofa. And we lived in a lot of different houses in Australia and back here. And we never had a sofa. And was that a consequence of moving around a lot? No, I think we didn't have that relationship where... You know, when I look at these people that say, oh, you know, we have a duvet day on the sofa and the kids get on and the, and I just think, oh, I couldn't bear that. Do you think that people of your generation didn't consider that having children was such a demand, it might just be something that had to be done and there's not really that consideration that you can take a different path? I think, have you ever watched Mad Men? I have. I love January Jones. When January Jones, the mother... <laughs> in that with the two children I love and this summed up children of the 50s of which I was one she's they're eating their dinner quietly um, at five o'clock in the afternoon and she's sitting there obviously the father's out working or doing whatever he does the two children are sitting there eating beige food and January Jones is smoking and flicking through a magazine and then when they finish says to them bed and they go and that's how we were, that's how we were brought up. So having children wasn't that invasive on your life. They play, you know, seen and not heard, bed, you know. But now, if you have children, it is all encompassing. It's your child, you know. Children are given so much value now. Why is that? Do you think it's a pressure that women put on other women, or parents put on other parents? I think it's. A, I think it had to happen after. Gosh, after. You know, I'm a post-war baby. It was a, it was quite a mean, you know, meagre time to be honest. And I think it had to this celebration of procreation and fertility, and you know, a, a, for a brief time, you know, a country that had so much happening, you know, colour and everything happened, and 
the family unit, you know, was everything. The people who died in the war, so the family and procreation and enjoyment and television sets and all these things, it had to happen. And so they almost reinvented the family. Hippies reinvented the family, I think. And as someone who hasn't had kids, do you face prejudice? No. I've been asked, on, but I think that's because of my lifestyle. I've been asked so often to talk about this. I have a friend, Bibi Lynch, you might know her, a journalist. She writes about this endlessly, about being stigmatised. And she probably was in her, in her um, choice of work and lifestyle. I have never. I work for the BBC. They, no one would, would ever ask me if I regret it or why I haven't had them, they would never ask. And no, never, ever. I think I am the luckiest. I honestly believe the, the, the life I live at the moment, I've never had to justify myself to anybody. And I think it's because of, of what I do for a living. I think that your lifestyle is very aspirational. And that's why I love your middle-aged minx channel, because you show that it's aspirational and you give people an insight into an alternative way of being. Would you say it's because you almost asserted to the world, this is me, this is how I live, don't pity me, don't assume that this is what I wanted, that people have been able to take you on your own terms? It's, so, it, it's, it's really interesting. When I started it, I never set off to think, look, I'm 64, you know, you can do this, you can wear whatever you want, you can do whatever. I never, that's just how I live my life. I've never, it's only the comments underneath when people have gone, oh, wow, I'm 64, I don't look like you, I'm buried in Keswick or something, you know, and I can't do what you do. And I just think that's never, that was never my intention. My intention was just follow me. This is, life is actually quite a laugh. You know, it's the the messages I've given out are, are, were totally unintentional. If anyone has, you know, I've started doing, you know, look at what I wear. I never, ever thought I'd do that. I remember my agent saying to me, have you, have you heard of this girl called Zoella? And I mean, this is a child putting on makeup in her bedroom. And I went, no, I went, why would I watch that? And she went, just, just have a look at her. Just tell me what you think. I'm telling you, from the moment I started, I was hooked because I just thought, oh my God, you've created your whole value in your bedroom to millions of people you've never set foot out. And I, so I just thought, I just want to do this. I just want to film myself. But I have to tell you something. YouTube, my friends with their children and their grandchildren, they have no idea why I'm fascinated by it. And I'll tell you why. It's voyeurism. I watch these people's lives. I go into my lovely home in Maribone where there's no, no one else's debris. There's nothing. There's just me and Matilda. And then I watch other people's lives playing out. It's voyeuristic. I'm fascinated by the voyeuristic thing mm. because I think there's almost... When I speak to people who are a huge fan of YouTube, it does tend to be people who like their own space, but almost it's that social interaction without having to give anything back, almost. 
You know, you've hit on a really good point. My listeners often on the on the BBC, when I start to talk about social influences, they all go, joke and you stop. And I go, just look at what they've done. Look at what they've done. Not through agents. They've just done it because they have something that hooks you, hooks people like me in. Loads of people try it and you're not interested in them. The ones with talent connect. They connect. But what's happening now, they're all having panic attacks because they are now expected to meet their public. And they, the whole reason, as you said, that they're doing it is they don't go out. Most of them, Zoella is an example. She talks about this endlessly on her channel. She hates going out. She's got this very extrovert boyfriend, Elfie, who's here, there and everywhere. And she just says, I don't want to go anywhere. And she doesn't like meeting I mean, I'm sure she loves meeting her fans, but it should, it doesn't come easy. And there are, there's a lot of them, the 2010 YouTubers, who were making these videos when they didn't even know what they were doing. They had no idea what the platform was about. Loads of them are burnt out and cracking up. It's funny, that idea that none of them really knew what they were going into. No one knew how no. big YouTube would become. None of them. What does the idea of being alone mean to you? Paradise. <laughs> Truly. It's not a threat. It's wonderful. It's warm. It's comforting. It's affectionate. It's a time to... It's restorative. It's, it's something I seek. So it means uh, it's safety and comfort and the place I want to be. I think you're the original poster girl for alonement. <laughs> I think it takes a lot of people, probably their whole lives, to realise that actually being alone is a time that's fulfilling. I think so many people spend all this time looking for a partner or looking for things to do that will stop them from being alone. But it is weird, because I was talking to my brother about this, who is incredibly introvert, and he said to me, I'll never watch a film on a laptop, he went, I want to sit in a cinema. I want all those people I don't know around me um, because you get the energy of the room. I don't want to talk to them. And I think that's why I live in London. I think that's why I love London. I, it's great to be alone in London. I live on Marylebone High Street. I open my door. There's a massive party going on 24 hours a day. So I can step into it and I can step out. Would I enjoy being alone in Keswick, I always talk about Keswick, but you know, would I, would I, living in some rural village or whatever, would I enjoy being alone or would I totally freak out? Do you know, I don't know. So you think there's something about that buzz of people being around you, especially in London where you've got so much life? You have choice. On. You have absolute choice. The, the last New Year's Eves I've had, I've always, since George has died, I've always, and he and I would always spend New Year's Eve together and we would always go to somewhere noisy in London because, you know, and see the new year in. And I will spend New Year's Eve on my own up until midnight. I've never told anyone this before. Then I will go out, I will go into the nearest pub on Marylebone High Street, open the door, hear the chimes, smile at everyone so I'm not on my own at midnight, close the door and go back up to my flat. Now, what's that about? Well, it sounds fabulous, to be honest. I hate New Year's Eve. I think most people do. <laughs> but would you freak out if, it, if you were going to be on your own? See, it shows that 
at that point, I actually want to be with people. Isn't that weird? But not people I know. It doesn't I want to hug anyone. Do you think that's sort of... Because it, to experience it alone would feel strange, but to be around people, it sort of feels like there's life around, yes. whatever that is. I think to be alone, seeing the new year in, would even, I would think, is sad. I think I live in a wonderful city. I can open my door. It will take me one minute to walk into the Regency pub, cheer, you know, cheer with everyone. I don't. I just smile at everyone, close the door, walk back, go back to my flat but I haven't been alone. I've had choice to step into that world and then I'll step right the way back out again. Well, I think it's funny that we all have our times, however happy or unhappy we are being alone. We all have those times that are the stigma times yeah. for being alone. You're so right. I remember when I broke up with my ex-boyfriend, the time I feared so much was Saturday night. If I was in on a Saturday night, I was a massive loser. Whatever I did during the week... And it's so strange. Yes. And when do you come to terms with that? When you get, when you just think, actually, it doesn't matter at all if I'm in on a Saturday. I'll watch Netflix. I'll sit and watch a YouTube or something. It doesn't, and it goes. It doesn't matter. Time passes. It's fine. Maybe, and I'm not patronizing you, that comes with age because I was, I absolutely get what you're saying. I think it's with anything you conquer the fear of doing it once you see that you can be in on a Saturday night or be in on New Year's Eve and the world doesn't end. Yeah then you conquer it and you think, okay, this is a time where I do have a choice. Nothing bad happens. Yeah, nothing bad happens. Do you think that's always something you've believed? Do you think you always had this notion of alone as restorative in this sort of interesting way that I don't think a lot of people see it? I think it's... I've never feared it. I think, as I said to you earlier when I was younger, I didn't seek it. But if I was alone, as I was found myself alone, I never panicked. I would never have gone out because I just thought I can't be in on my own. I've never, because of, because of my family and us all spending a lot of time alone in our rooms, it's never been a threat. I never sought it as I do now. And maybe that's because I was usually in a relationship. The last relationship I had to fight to, to find my own time on my own and he had so much resentment he was so accusatory that I was you know that as everything that you said that it was a criticism of him or that I was seeking someone else I just you know I don't think he could believe that I actually on a Saturday night would prefer to be on my own sometimes he just couldn't and I don't think many men can to be honest do you think it's a gender thing yeah why is that just look at how many when how many relationships end how many how many divorced men are there on their own not many no no it does seem to be the case that men move on a lot quicker afterwards because they don't like being on their own sorry guys this is such a generalization but i've done so many phone ins on this you know women will call their girlfriends round the sisterhood whatever you want to call it they'll get huge help and assistance and affection from their mates men won't even start to tell each other how they feel and they're they're seeking if they're straight they're seeking companionship with a woman i completely echo that but i also think that maybe it's not the individual man but the way that male friendship works it's so different i 
know that if I've ever had a breakup or something bad happened, my friends will be over in Like a, a shot. Like a shot. It's amazing, the support system you have. And I think people bemoan being a woman for all sorts of reasons, but I definitely think we have the edge when it comes to that. And I think it's almost women have the option to be alone, whereas for men who might not have that structure, it's not like they can choose between having their best friends as their partners or their partner as their partner, or as often is the case, a mixture of both. They have to choose between either being alone or being in a relationship. It's. I had an author on this week. She was about my age. And she said something so interesting because she's alone. She's also a grandmother. And I said to her, off air, I said, do you love... I told her I was coming to see you, actually. I said, do you love living on your own? And she said, no, actually, I'm now ready for another partner because her husband had died, the father of her children. And I said, have you met anyone? And she said... Do you know I quite fancy my next partner being a woman? She said, I don't actually want sex. I just want a woman now to live with me because women are just such great company and understand each other. And I really want a a female partner. And she went, that would be my next move. And that substantiates everything you've just said. And that thing about living alone, though, do you think that maybe this person in question and people generally just don't get to give it a chance oh they freak out it's it's what i said about vanessa opening the front door shouting hello no answer bolt you know i it is so interesting isn't it that so to go back to youtube there are various vloggers who as they've made their money then they will put on youtube you know i've bought my own place or i've moved into my own place and i sit there and think oh this will be interesting because you've moved out of your family or you, your mates or cohabiting and they nine times out of 10 they can't hack it you know they do a big i'm decorating this watch this watch and then they sit there twiddling their thumbs and then the next vlog will be i've gone back to mum's or i've gone back to so and so's and i spend more time there in my own and i just think why didn't you enjoy it what made you run out of this place that you've created you know everything in it every doorknob every cushion everything you've created it's all yours you built your little nest and then you flee so what are you, are you running from yourself? What is it you're running from? Are you running from silence that no one else is feeling? I don't know. I mean, none of us need to live in silence now, do we? We don't. And that's interesting in itself that you talk about when you're by yourself at home, you often turn your phone off. Mm. And people talk about being alone, but they'll be alone, they'll be watching the TV and they'll have their phone in the other hand and they will probably be connected to people 24-7. Do you think that maybe people are scared of sitting with their own thoughts? Is that, is that what I the think scary so. thing is? But, I mean, you know, I, I practice a lot of yoga. My mother was a yoga teacher up until the age of 87. That whole thing of, I find it really difficult to meditate, but I find it very easy to sit still and to think. I find it really easy because I've practiced yoga for so long. That stillness and presence and I'm really careful not to use the word mindfulness but just that presence it I I can go into that really easily really easily how how much of your life have you lived alone 
well, uh, even with George, I was living on my own. So I have lived, and in Brighton, before I came to London to work for BBC Radio London, I was living on my own in Brighton. I have lived on my own 30 years. 30 years. And you were you were married yeah. in 1978 yes. to Richard Piper. After that marriage ended, did you ever consider remarrying? Did you Did you like being married? It was... We never... I mean, he's amazing, actually. If anyone watches Neighbours, he's in Neighbours in Australia. He's married, right, he's married five other women since me. And we're like Russian dolls. I'm the original blonde, and they've gone down in age, actually. Um, and he's, if he was here now, you'd, you'd just think, oh, isn't he wonderful? He's so charismatic, he would fill a room. And I loved being married. We, I think someone dared us to get married. We were both in West End shows at the time, and we just got married at Wilston Green Registry Office. He was on stage at Astoria, the Astoria. I was on stage at Wyndham's. We took the afternoon to get married and lived in a flat in Wilston Green, but with other people. We still, we never lived alone as a couple. We There were other people there living with us. It was a short, very eventful marriage. I loved him. I still love him. It was great. I No, I never wanted to marry again, unlike him. Actually... I then did marry, I did live with someone, I was in Crossroads um, for four years and had a relationship with someone in Crossroads and we bought our first flat together in Dulwich and we lived together but we were never there, we were both working, he was still in Crossroads, I was touring and educating Rita, we never actually spent more than a Sunday afternoon. So yeah, I've lived alone basically since my marriage. So while you've been married and you've also cohabited in a separate relationship, it's never been that traditional setup. No, never. Have you ever craved that? Has never. Ever been? never. I've fought it. I've never wanted it. Never, ever wanted it. Never wanted a timetable. Never wanted my shelves in the fridge to have anyone else's food on. <laughs> Truly. I suppose, I don't know, am I selfish? I don't know. With that particular person... It caused a few problems, I suppose, because he, when he would come back from Birmingham where they were filming Crossroads, he would have expected me to be there on a Sunday, but I often wasn't. You know, the one afternoon he gets back to our flat that we were both sharing, I often wouldn't be there. I just, I don't like routines. I don't like timetables. I loathe coziness. And yet you come from a traditional nuclear family setup. Mm. Yeah. But you never wanted to mimic no. that. And we weren't a cosy family. You know, we were a very loving family. I was loved enormously. We were not a cosy family. You know, there was not all this snuggle down under a fleece and watch upstairs, downstairs, which was the television of choice for my age group. No. You know, we were all in our separate rooms. So I've got a listener question to mm. finish off. And the question is... I'm not happy in my relationship, but I'm worried about my partner being alone. And the thought of him being alone is what's keeping us together. What would you advise? I would... Gosh, this sounds quite ruthless. It's to worry about someone else if you want to leave them. I think this person wants to, to stop the relationship. You have to do what you have to do. If that person is weak in one direction, they will always be weak in one direction. You are not going to help it. You're not. 
you know, they have to help themselves. If they run from their own reflection, which is being on their own, you and nothing you are going to do is ever going to stop that. They have to sort that out. But I will tell you now, they won't. A, because they're male and they will probably just fill it with someone else. So the separation is traumatic and you'll grieve the end of a relationship but the cynic in me will say he's a bloke he will find someone he won't sit it out the person I would admire would be the person who goes she's left me and I'm going to just now take time this chapter is me sorting my head out building up my strength that won't happen it just won't happen is that cynical I think that's brilliant and I think it's very true Joe, thank you so much. You have been so personally inspiring for me on the whole alonement journey and you're leading by example so much with your channel and I think that you can inspire a lot of other people. I thank you. Can I just say I a lot and I'm not a lot of what I've told you I have never said I talk about my life on air every day. There is a lot I've never said or even thought about until tonight. So thank you. You're very good at your job. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Alonement Podcast. And thanks also to my fascinating guest, Joe Good. Honestly, I wish our conversation could have gone on forever. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. If you loved this episode, please do rate, review or subscribe. It makes all the difference to help other people discover the show. Join me next Friday for a brand new episode. Until next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.